Um, just a couple of ideas before I begin the shir. Uh, first of all, I just wanted to dedicate the shir to the Alias Neshama of Rini Moko or Regina Bas Yosef Reuven. Just go for the Alias Neshama. Um, you know, just interesting. I, I, people have asked me, you know, what what seems to be happening. And the key, really, when you think about it, which is what I once spoke about, the concept of the windows, which the Ramchal speaks about in the Ma'amah Hagula, that before the end, things have, beca- have to become so bad that it's as if windows are closing. Let's assume you're in a house and the windows are painted black, but the window is open. And through the window is what the shefa or the divine influence or force is coming. So as long as that comes through, uh, then the world exists. But if that window shuts and all of a sudden that prevents the window, the, uh, the uh, divine force from coming through, then the world immediately annihilates. So as we get closer and closer to the Messianic era, what is happening is that this window is slowly closing. And the Ramchal, Ramon Shechem Lutzato, says that it won't close because that would mean the annihilation of the entire creation, actually. But what it will do is reach a point in which after that point, it would be closed. So we're talking about what he calls Ad Ad until, right? But, but not for really closed. And the, uh, uh, you know, it's until it's closed, but the until is not uh, operative. So that's right before it closes. What that means is that the, the uh, divine presence will be so little, there will be such a tiny amount of influx of the divine presence that, like I said, just one small nanometer of motion uh, will close the window and destroy the world. What that means is that the amount of zoyamo, tumor, defilement and pollution and evil will be of such great proportion that the world will be extremely dark. The truth is that's really what we're seeing today. Uh, one of the, probably the best way to describe it, uh, it was in that situation where the window is almost closed, what would be the feeling among the people? And the answer to that is that it will be a feeling among people of tremendous confusion and also of tremendous hopelessness. That's right. That's how bad it will be. When it would be, when you look out and you look at this world, and it is so irrational, right? So insane, what people are saying and doing, that it's almost hopeless, where a person would say to himself, forget it. It's impossible to turn around or to reverse itself. That's how dominant and all-controlling is the amount of irrationality, 
the amount of evil, the amount of darkness. It's hopeless. And if you think about it, that's exactly what happened in Egypt. If you think about it, imagine the Jews are there 210 years or whatever. Could you imagine a day before Moshe Rabbeinu arrives in Egypt? What did the Jews think after so many hundreds of years of slavery? I'm sure they all felt hopeless. They knew there would be a redemption because it was promised. You know, it was promised by uh, the others and so on. But when they looked at the reality of Egypt, really, it was hopeless. That's how total this slavery was. Then the next day, in comes Moshe Rabbeinu. So what God did is he brought the situation of Egypt to almost utter, uh, utter despair, you know, which is really terrible when you think about that, and so on. And then, of course, when Moshe came, it was even worse, because in Parai, Pharaoh made the decree of straw. Well, today we have the same thing, you know. You look at the world, and the world is terrible. In many ways, it's insane. It's like the, you know, they say the, uh, the patients have taken over the asylum. And that's really what's happening. Gender, when you look at the concept of what they call gender fluidity, does any of this make sense? Of course not. None of this makes sense. How could somebody determine or decide what gender he wants to be when his biology clearly declares what he is, whether it be a he or a she? Yet, yet this world says, no, no, no. You have the ability to declare whatever you want. You call it male, female, or other. What in the world does other mean? It's psychotic. That's really what it is. It's beyond irrational, you see. And, and therefore, that's an indication of how ludicrous everything is, you see. But I, I think I mentioned that really it's a brilliant ploy of darkness and evil, you see. Because by being able to give the control of your gender over to yourself... You can deny that you're even deviating. For instance, a guy can say, well, I'm not a homosexual. You know, even though I want to go with men. Why? Because I'm not a man. I decided I want to be a woman. Right? And that's who I am. I'm a woman. So therefore, if I'm a woman and not a man, then I'm not a homosexual. You see that line of reasoning? In other words, what they've done is take away the entire sin by saying it's not a sin because I'm not a man. It's an incredible idea when you think about that. So what the world is so corrupt that this is what they can say. I mean, this whole, you know, attraction, the whole concept of transgender, you know, the uh, LGBTQ and so on, I heard that they even added on letters to indicate more deviancies. Uh, you realize that the pattern is completely devoid of any type of intelligence or rationality. And this is what's happening, you see. But it's not only in the, in the field of gender. 
When you think about it, it's in every way the world has turned completely a-spiritual. But it's not only a-spiritual. A-spiritual means without spirituality, right? It has turned anti-spiritual. You see, uh, the Democrats, the Democratic Party, the liberals, and so on, many of them have become tremendously anti-spiritual. You know, they're against God. They're against any form of religion. I mean, this is, you know, this is obvious what's going on when you see it. Uh, you know, I'm not even going into the fact that the world is completely immersed and absorbed in physicality and pleasure, you know, and having a great time and so on, you know. So, Remember one thing, evil does not necessarily mean to do harm to somebody, although that's certainly a form of evil. Evil is to deny reality and to implement it, on the contrary, and to promote it. If the world really is a spiritual place, if God really exists and there are spiritual beings and man's purpose is spiritual, then the height of evil would be to deny that, you see. And that's exactly what's happening. There's an unbelievable denial of, of spirituality. But it's worse because we now witness in this generation a rebellion against spirituality, you see. And that's really what we're looking at. When mankind has become completely corrupt and deviant, what that means is they are defying the norm. They are defying the reality of what is. Yes, it's a defiance against the morals, the values, the ethics of what God has instituted in this world and so on, you know. I mean, now marriage, why do you have to get married for? You know, I once heard the statistic that more than half of people in uh, Manhattan is single. That shows you where the entire concept of, uh, of marriage is and so on, you know. People say to themselves, what do I have to get married for? What do I have to sacrifice? Have kids, you know, and diminish my own freedom. Let me do what I want, you see. And whatever pleasures I need, I can always go to others. I don't have to tie myself down. This is what's happening all over the world, you see. I mean, they're really terrible statistics when you really look at them. I don't want to go through them, uh, but it's really terrible. The key, however, in looking at all this evil, remember, is the sense of utter confusion and hopelessness. That's the level that God wants to bring the world to. And one of the reasons for that is that God is demonstrating that what uh, mankind has chosen as the way of life will destroy the world. In fact, if not for God's intervention in what mankind has done to itself, this world would not survive by its own. You know, we're not even talking about punishment by God. You know, evil will not survive on its own. And that's exactly what we see. You know, wars, uh, tremendous amount of uh, selfishness and corruption.
we see that. And uh, this is the, the concept of evil having a free reign. So we are now in an environment of tremendous amount of darkness. It's really what we're in. And I imagine by now, everybody in a certain sense has this tremendous sense of hopelessness that there's no way to get out of this. That is the window at the proper place that it has to be, which is almost closed for the redemption to start, to reverse the whole process. Well, you're looking at it, uh, and this is what the Gemara says. You know, in the end of time, there will be a tremendous dever, plague, which, of course, the world is experiencing on and on with COVID and its variations, you know, and that's exactly what's happening. <clears throat> It's funny because one of the Gemaras say, that at the time of the end, a pruta, which is a money item, right, will be absent from the pocket. And we see that now, the tremendous amount of inflation that is happening, you know. But in any case, that arrogance and gall will grow. So if you look at the Gemara in the end of Soito and the Gemara in Chelek and Sanhedrin, uh, what they say the environment and the climate will be at the end of time, this is exactly what we're in. So in a certain sense, it's good news and bad news. The uh, bad news is that we're in this climate you know, of utter despair, depravity, of morals and values and so on. The good news, right, is that we're there, and therefore, can it get worse? And the truth is, what really is very interesting is we are seeing the collapse of this state. Because America, in many ways, is collapsing. In fact, the entire world is collapsing in that sense, you know. So we see that Biden was really in many ways a very evil person. I mean, just the, the crimes that he's committed, you know, the, the, the fact that he's not interested uh, in, in preserving the life of an infant. He's completely for termination, abortion, right up to the time of birth, you see. <clears throat> and uh, I'm not even talking about the fact that the border, this, uh, the southern border is completely open so not only is crime coming through and COVID coming through, but what's really terrible is over 120,000 people have died from fentanyl, drugs coming through. So how could you allow that? Your own American citizens are dying, you know, and he's the one who wants to control guns. How hypocritical can you be? But we see that he's collapsing in the polls, which is very interesting. Uh, so therefore we see that there seems to be an end. It's coming up to the evil of what America is doing. And the problem is that America is a beacon for the entire world, you see. But also the era of Rav in Israel, those people that want to war against the Jews, they want to war against the mitzvahs that God promulgated and so on, you know. We see that the whole government is on the verge of collapsing. This is also happening. 
So that's the era of Rav, and they are the end. So the good news is that all the evil that we see is at its extreme level. But we see this evil is really collapsing. And that's a very important idea. So therefore, we have to take hope that we are truly at the end, you see. So we have to take hope. In any case, so those are just uh, the comments I wanted to make. So in a certain sense, uh, like I say, you know, the bad news itself is the good news. That, it's en- that it seems to be ending. <clears throat> we have to hope that it will. And that the Mashiach is right around the corner. In any case, I want to talk about something <clears throat> uh, which in many ways is an outgrowth of Shavuos, which we just passed. Shavuos, we know, is the giving of the Torah that we know. <clears throat> and the question, of course, is, what is the main message or the, the main communications that the revolutionary God wants to, did transmit to the Jews? It's a very important idea. Now we know <clears throat> that one of the things that of course he transmitted is the Tariq Mitzvah. Not immediately, but over the 40 years. But Martin Torah, which is Shavuos, clearly had the transmission of the, uh, you know, the whole concept of commandments and mitzvahs. But is that the essential message of Shavuos? No. You have to be aware that there are three aspects to reality in terms of God. And this is what God showed them. You know, it's interesting that in, in uh, Devarim, where it says, you know, when you were at Sinai, it says, you have been shown to know, right? Hashem Kim, God is the Lord, the Master. Besides God, there is nothing else. And Rashi says, comments on that, that God opened up the heavens. Rashi says this, that God opened up the heavens and he showed the Jewish people, Yechidi shel Oilam. He is the Yechidi. He's the only one. He's the unique one, right, of the entire world. <clears throat> what that Rashi is telling us is that the essential message of Sinai was who God is. That's the essential message. Because who God is is the absolute determinant of everything. And it's also the, what tells us realities is not. And what they saw at Sinai, that means every Jew witnessed this concept at Sinai, that that besides God, there is no other being. God is the only being that exists. And we do not exist like God. We are really, you can say, part of his imagination, so to speak. We don't have the same existence as he does. He really exists. We don't. And in some way, he's able to project us. So within that projection, there's a reality. 
but the projection itself is not real. Best way of describing that is imagine looking at a movie screen, right? So you take a kid and you say, you see that? And the kid looks at the movie, right? He says, wow, to him it's real. He doesn't know that it's really, none of this is real. All of this is, you know, etchings on film that's projected through, a, you know, through light and so on. To him it's real, you see. Now we know, of course, that it's not real. So in that sense, we are on the movie screen. That's what we look, we are. The movie screen, you know. People on the movie screen itself, you know, relative to themselves, they don't, they exist. But the really, the nature of the existence is a movie. It's not real, you see. Same idea, you know. We exist on a screen. So in reality, to ourselves, we exist. But we exist on this film, <clears throat> right? The reality of that film is film. It's not real people at all. This is what the Jewish people realized at Sinai. So what they saw was the following. One, is that God really is the only thing that exists. Nothing else exists at all, period. In whatever way we do exist, it's like we are on a projection on a movie screen. Second thing is that, therefore, the only one that causes... So the first concept is called Yichud Mitzi Usoi, you know, the oneness of his existence. The second concept, which emerges from that, is Yichud Shlitosoi, which is the uniqueness or the oneness of his dominion or his causation. God is the only cause. There is no other cause, you know. And I'll explain in a minute the concept of free will. There is no other cause at all. We may think we cause, we do, we execute, and so on. But that's an illusion. It's called the illusion of causality, you see. So therefore, God is the only cause altogether. And that's called Yichot the oneness of his cause, causation, or his shrita, his dominion, or domination. <clears throat> but it's not only that. Those are two uniquenesses of God. He's the only thing that really exists, and he's the only true cause of all. But there's a third concept. Is Yichud Han Hogosoi, that the direction that this world goes in is solely up to God. In other words, the world must go in the direction that God wants it to go, even though we have free will. And that, again, is something which we don't understand how God does that. If we have free will, then how in the world is he the only one that directs everything and that the world has to wind up in the ultimate situation that he wants? We don't know. To us, it seems like a contradiction. But there is a thing called Yichud Hanugosoi, with Anhogo, 
the direction, the goal, the objective of this world must go in the direction that God wants. He will not be frustrated. You see? So there you are. This is reality of the three types of situations. God is the only thing that exists. God is the only cause. And the only one, the only outcome is what God wants. There is no other outcome. That's it. This is what Christ saw at Matantara. And that is a very important idea. Now, what God did, therefore, is he made an illusion of all these three things. You see, so Adam, mankind, thinks that it has a self, that it exists independent of God. Not only that, so that's the illusion of self. The second illusion is we think we cause. We actually do things. Things happen because we cause them. That's the illusion of causality. And then the third illusion is the illusion of outcome that we direct. We determine the outcome of things that are happening. That's also an illusion, you see. So all three are illusions that are in the mind of man. But all three are the reverse in reality. So Adam and Chava, they had what delusion? Now, they knew, they felt that they have a self. You see. In other words, it's true that God is a Yichot Shlitosoy. They understood that God is the absolute dominant force. You see. And that he basically is an absolute cause. Not them. Because if you think about it, they came into a world after six days. They knew they didn't do this. Now, we don't know what Gan Eden was, but it must have been magnificent, you know, because that's the standard. It's a Gan Eden, right? That's the standard we're always using for a perfect utopia, you see. So they knew they didn't create the world. And they knew that it was the work of God. It was the handiwork of God. You see, so they knew that he was a Yichot Shlitosa in the sense that he's the only cause. But they didn't know Yichot Mitziusai, that he's the only being that exists, and not them or anything else for that matter. And that's a very important idea. So what the Nochash, the snake, what's called the primordial snake, he wanted to contest that belief. And his job, right, was to give mankind a false illusion. You see, so what he did is he <clears throat> approached Chava and he told her, you're making a big mistake, you know. Uh, you think that God is the ultimate cause, right, and that you are really not a cause. You must follow what God said. But the Nochash said, the snake said, I will tell you something interesting. That tree in the middle of the garden that God does not want you to eat from, that tree exists, you see. Uh, and that tree is the only thing that can give you the ability to cause. In fact, God ate from that tree himself. And as a result of that, 
he became, he has the ability to cause, to do things. So therefore, if you eat from that tree, you will be like God. Yisim Kilokim, that's what the Noch said. You will be like God with the ability to truly bring things about, to truly, truly cause things, you see. <clears throat> now, they felt they exist independent of God. They had the illusion of self-being. That they had. But what the Nochash did, right, he didn't attack that. He attacked the fact that they think they're not a cause. So what he said was that if you eat from the tree, you will be like God. To do what? So Rashi says, you will be able to create worlds, which means you will be an incredible cause. And God does not want you to eat from that tree because he doesn't want any rivals, you see. So obviously he doesn't want you to eat from that tree. So what he did is he denigrated God. It means he made God look like somebody who is not really God. And the only reason why he has the power of doing, causing, is because he ate from the tree. Uh, you see, he degraded God. That's lush and horror. The second thing, obviously, is that it's false. So it's Moiti Shemra, right? It's uh, false information. And the third aspect is what is implied, that God is not interested in your welfare. He doesn't want you to be like him. So really, it's all about God selfishness, you see. So he's deceiving you. And that's called Rechilus, where you tell somebody that somebody did something to you that is harmful, and therefore you'll wind up hating that person. So what he did is he engendered a certain feeling of, really when you think about it, <clears throat> anger and resentment against God, you see. Because God did this. God fooled you not to eat from the tree. <clears throat> even though it would be very good for you because then you could be like God. So therefore he created a myth in the mind of Adam that God is selfish, you see, and he's only thinking about himself. That's called Rechilus, you see. So it's amazing when you think about it. In the first recorded conversation in history between the snake and Chavo, already there was Lashon Hara, harmful speech, there was false speech, Shemra. and not only that, but there was also Rechilus, where somebody informs on somebody else that he tried to harm him. It's amazing when you think about it. In any case, this is what the snake said, because he wanted, this, the snake wanted Adam to believe in Chavo, that they are true causes, and therefore they could do whatever they want, and obviously rebel, because if they're a true cause, then obviously they can, uh, you know, benefit by their ability to do things. So why do they have to listen to the command of God? You know, that's what the Nochash wanted. But they still believed that they were independent. But they knew God, like I said, was the ultimate cause. And the Nochash, the snake, convinced them, Chava and then Adam, that they too also can cause. You see. So what did God do? Which is interesting. You know, and that's what it means. You know, as you sow, so shall you reap. So what God did is he said to Adam, 
In the sweat of your brow, right, you will eat bread. Now, most people think, well, that was a punishment. Because until now, you were able to eat to whatever you want, what's called livelihood, panosa, right? It was given to you in Gan Eden. You didn't have to work. You didn't have to do anything. You see, it was all there for the taking. But now, you have to sweat. You have to labor. You have to expend effort. You see, in order to eat bread, that's what it means. In the sweat of your brow, right, you will um, uh, you will eat uh, bread. So they say, most people think, this is a punishment. But that's not what it was. What God said is, since you believe the nochash, the snake, right, uh, that you can be a true cause then I'm going to create a reality that you will live in which will induce you to think that you're a true cause. Because the only way you can make a livelihood is how? Is by working. So you clearly think that you are responsible for your livelihood or your wealth or whatever. And with that reality or situation, you're going to have to labor through it to figure out that you're not a cause, that only God is the real cause. In other words, what the Rabbi Shalom did is he intensified the illusion where he gave mankind a reality, a situation, where he thinks he's a real cause. And in that situation, he now has to figure out, he has to struggle with this false illusion that he's not a cause in any which way possible. Thereby, thereby making it much more difficult for Adam, right, to break through that illusion. So God didn't punish Adam in that sense. What he did is he conformed to Adam's belief. You believe that you are a cause, right? And the way I am a cause is because I ate from the tree. Therefore, I'm going to make your reality one in which you must cause or seemingly cause your livelihood. And therefore, you will be fooled into thinking, you see, the reason why I have everything I have, all my possessions, is because I'm a true cause. So in that reality, you're going to have to figure out that this is not true, which is going to make it much more difficult for you to arrive at the true notion of reality, that God is the only cause. In other words, he reinforced the belief of Odomorishim, to give Adam Rishon a much more difficult test because now Adam sees that the only way he has reality is how? Is if he labors. That's what Bezeh Sapecha Torecha Lechem really means. You see. So it's not so much a punishment. What it is is a reinforcement of reality that conforms to his delusional thinking. That's a very important idea. You see. Now, <clears throat> in order to really understand this, you have to understand, like I said, there are three delusions. Chief among them is that we think we are independent of God. We think we are true selves. You see. And we're always laboring with that. <clears throat> in fact, what's interesting <clears throat> is that we think we are true selves. Why? First of all, we have the feeling of being self. 
real being. Because, and we have the feeling that, you know, because we exist, we can experience our existence. And that gives us the illusion that we really exist, independent of God. Because we don't see the connection between us and God. As far as we're concerned, we exist independent of God. So therefore, we have a true sense of self, you see. And that's a very important idea. Now, what's really very interesting about that, the most fundamental psychological drive of all is the concept called self-preservation. That is central to everybody. That is the most basic, essential drive of man, is to do what? Is to survive. In fact, all creatures have that, you see. So we have a drive to self-preserve, where we protect ourselves. And from that emanates the security drive, that we want to feel secure in our ability to preserve ourselves. But there's a second psychological drive that is essential in the sense that we all believe it, we strive for it. What is that drive? And by the way, the lack of this is the origin of all psychological problems. All of us want to feel like with somebody, we're worth something, self-worth. Yes, we're all driven to feel like we're somebody. It's called self-worth or self-esteem, self-respect, self-regard, whatever. But this, in many ways, occupies us 24-7. In fact, we don't even realize how much we are immersed in this. Everything we do reinforces or reassures us, right? Not only that we exist, but that we are somebody we are something, an important being, you see, that we have self-worth. If we lack that, uh, then we feel we are inferior. Uh, so we have what's called inferiority, you see. That second drive, besides self-preservation, is really the most basic drive of all humans. And we are always trying to fulfill that drive 24-7. Everything we do is in some way a reassertion that we are somebody, that we have self-worth, you know. Even though when you think about it, it's interesting. Why? Why do I have to feel like I'm somebody? I am somebody. You think animals walk around thinking, well, how do I prove that I'm somebody? An animal is only interested in its survival. That's why they become territorial. They protect their territory so they can survive intuitively. God put that drive in them so they can survive. They don't have this problem with self-worth. A lion doesn't have to prove it's somebody. It just wants to eat and survive. Why do humans have to feel like they're somebody? It's astounding. In fact, what's interesting is that the Torah warns us about this drive. How does a person get to feel like he's somebody? You see. Now remember, feeling like you're somebody, part of that is that you feel yourself. Because if I'm a somebody, right, if I have self-worth, then I am. You see. 
So what convinces us that we are is that we have worth. So we are driven to have self-worth. Even like I just said, it doesn't make sense. Existence is its own worth. We are what we are because we are what we are. We don't have to prove anything. Yet what's interesting is the lack of that it underlies all emotional problems, inferiority, you see. So we are constantly trying to gain a sense of self-worth. There are basically four ways that we do it to gain self-worth in order to convince ourselves that we are somebody. What are they? Well, it's amazing when you think about it that the Torah actually says this. You see, that we are so consumed with feeling that we are somebody that the Torah warns us that if you're going to engage constantly in feeling like somebody, right, you're going to feel you're independent of God. And if that's the case, you're not going to do the mitzvahs. Because why should you do the mitzvahs if you exist independent of God? Where is that? Well, in Pasha's Ekev, <clears throat> which is in Sefer Dvarim, in Cheney, which is the second section, here's what it says, okay? And I will read it to you. Beware, I'm going to translate it into English. Beware, lest you forget the Lord your God. To, and therefore, what will be the consequences of this? Right? To not observe His commandments and His ordinances. You see, you're going to forget God. And when you forget God, you don't observe His commandments and His ordinances, which is the halachas, the chukam, and so on, and the statutes that I am commanding you today. But wait a minute. What does it mean you forget God? Who are you replacing it with? You're replacing it with yourself. That's the exact... That is the uh, seesaw that... When you replace God with self, that's when you rebel against God. You see, once you feel that you are a self. Now, this is what God is saying. You're going to forget God and therefore not observe any of his commandments, right? Now, how will that happen? So God says, lest you eat and be satisfied. That's one way. And the second way, and you will build good houses and settle in them. This is number two. Number three. And your cattle and your flocks increase. That's possessions. And then number four. And silver increased for you. Right? And everything that is yours increases. You see. That's what you're going to do. Now what's interesting. Is that these are the four ways. That a person gets. Self-worth. And therefore a sense of self. The danger is that you will not recognize that these things are given to you by God. And therefore, you do not need God. You are a true cause. What does that mean? Well, let's take a look at the first thing. Lest you eat and be satisfied. <clears throat> you don't realize, but every time you exercise your will, your, your mind, and you do something, that itself exercises being and therefore you feel like a self and when you feel like a self because you've now 
caused, you ate and you're satisfied, right? So you've caused that. You've exercised being. So automatically you feel like a self. You see, that's one way. So the experiencing or the exercising of will will make you feel like a self and therefore give you a sense of self-worth. That's number one. The second way, right, and you will build good homes and settle in them. So the first way is by exercising your will and pleasure. The second way is what's called productivity. You're going to build a good house and you're settled. So that's called productivity. So when a person is productive, they feel like a self. They have what's called self-worth. So that is the second way that a person gains that sense of self-worth and self. <clears throat> Third way, the Torah is actually enumerating this, and your cattle and your flocks will increase. Well, that's a third way, possessions. When you own something, when you possess something, basically you control that item that you possess. Control gives you, over that item, control gives you a sense of self or a sense of worth, you see. So that's a third way that you will feel like a somebody. And then and silver and gold increase for you. And we know what money is. Money, absolute money, we know is fundamentally worthless. What is the power of money? Is that it can get you everything. It gives you potency to buy, to do anything you want, basically, right? So that gives you an enormous fact that you have such potential and such potency, the ability to get everything, gives you a tremendous sense of worth and therefore a sense of self. But what will happen? Here's what's going to happen. If you do these four things, right, then, Pasuk 17, and you will say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand made me these riches. There you are. My power and the might of my hand, that's what did it. In other words, I'm a true cause, and therefore, I'm a true being, you see. I'm a true cause, and therefore, I can do whatever I want, <coughs> you see. And then in Pesach 18, it says, <clears throat> You shall remember the Lord your God, as it is He who gives you the power to generate riches, you see. He's the cause that he allows you to generate so you can be under the illusion that you did it, not him, in order to fulfill his covenant with regard to the fact that he took an oath with your forefathers. <clears throat> the Torah is actually outlining, right, that you have to be careful. If you engage in these four activities, right, exercising will, then productivity, then possessions, and then money, which is potential and potency, you, can, you will very fall, likely fall into the illusion of causality, which will give you a sense of self-worth, which will convince you that, that you exist independent of God. And therefore you will say, I'm the one, my power, my might has done this. That's a very important idea, because that's the illusion that God created for Odomeritian which makes his test much more severe, you see. <clears throat> so therefore we see that the Torah actually outlines this concept.
you see. So we now understand that the the basic illusions that we are under <clears throat> is that we exist independent of God. Not that He is the only thing that exists, being that exists, but we exist independent of Him. The second illusion that we have to, you know, destroy is that we therefore are a true cause, you see. And what is interesting, which I'm mentioning, <clears throat> is that the fact that we, that we are a true cause constantly leads us to feel, right, that we are self-worth, that we have worth. We are truly beings on our own, you see. And this is what we're always doing, constantly. We're, everything you do, whether you know it or not, part of it is in the search or the struggle to feel like a somebody. Even when you have a conversation with anybody, you know, in a certain sense, you want to show off. You want to show how good you are, how much you know, how smart you are, how rich you are, whatever. You know, when you exercise free will, that also indicates who you are, you see, and that you are an independent being. God says these four things are what will lead you astray if you don't understand that they are not real, you are not the cause. God says, I have given you all this. I'm the only cause. This is the Bezeza Pecha that God created in the sweat of your brow, that God created from Odom Harishan because he sinned. You know, we're eating from the tree and so on. And this is really in many ways the situation that we are in, <clears throat> you see. Now, those are the two illusions, that God is the only thing that exists, so we think we exist independent of Him. And what's interesting is what fosters that belief is that we feel our existence. We don't see how we emanate from Him at all, you see. Not only that, we see a multiplicity of forces. We see many beings, not just ourselves, so besides having this feeling that we exist independent, right, there's also we see many beings. So how could there be only one being that has true existence? And we see many forces. And these forces, they are causes. So we get the feeling that we are also a cause. And to heighten that delusion, we ourselves are constantly doing things that give us a sense of worth, which means a sense of being somebody, you see, and therefore we're always involved in these pursuits. Now, I mentioned one more delusion, and that's a Yichur Hanagosoi. We think we can determine, right, where or what the ultimate outcome is, <clears throat> but not really. There's very interesting support for this. You know, it says Yaakov and, Yo and Yosef. Yosef was gone for many years, obviously, he was uh, kidnapped by his brothers and sold as a slave to Egypt. And Yosef did not see Yaakov for many, many years, you see, 22 years or whatever. And ultimately what happened is Yaakov Ovinu found out that Yosef was still alive, and he said, I must go to Egypt to see him. And Yaakov, with all the Jews, everybody, 
went to Egypt, which is interesting. They arrived in Egypt, and Yaakov and Yosef saw each other. And could you imagine the joy in both Yaakov and in Yosef's heart? In fact, the Medrash says that, you know, that Yosef was so overjoyed at seeing his father after so many years that he was crying continuously. Imagine what the joy he felt. But the Medrash says that Yaakov was not crying. Yaakov was saying, Shema Yisrael. He was saying the Pesach, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's, a, that's an obvious contrast. Uh, we can understand Yosef, why he was crying. But why was Yaakov saying Shema? So people want to say, you know, it's a, it's a Musa concept that he wanted to take the incredible joy of seeing Yosef alive. He wanted to take that joy and say Shema, which is the ultimate statement of belief, with this joy. In other words, he wanted to take the joy and bring it in God's service. That's one way of looking at it. But there's another concept, which is fundamental. Yaakov realized in that instant wait a minute, how could Yosef be alive? You know, he didn't know that. He thought Yosef had died, was destroyed by some animal, right? And not only that, but uh, Yehuda had his problems with, because of Tamar, he had his problems with Yaakov and with Esau and so on. Uh, You see, so as far as he's concerned, right, everything was lost, because he knew he he had to have 12 tribes. 12 sons, and Yosef was gone. He had a tremendous amount of what's called Soros problems, you see. But he now realized that all of these problems happened because outcome is only the realm of God. Everything happens the way God wanted. And all of these things were orchestrated to bring about the redemption. Where Yosef is now the Grand Vizier of Egypt. And he realized that there were so many different pathways that all coincided, all converged, where he is now hugging Yosef. So what became clear to him is the concept of Yichud Hanagosoi, that truly everything seems to happen independent of each other or not even connected to each other. You know, this person is going this way and that person is going that way. You have your own difficulties in life. Many times, nothing seems to make sense. Everything seems to be disconnected. But really, there's a divine plan where everything is connected. Everything. But we don't see that. And what that means is that no matter what you do, no matter where you are, you are part of the connection to that divine outcome that must happen. And Yaakov realized that when he saw that all of the problems he had, all of them, converged to make this moment happen. And the only one who could have done that is God. That's the Yichud Han It's the unique oneness, right, of the conduct of God where everything could look different, yet in the end, Everything happens. They all converge on the outcome that God wants. 
even though everything else looks like it's all splintered and it's all divided. And that truth became so powerful that he actually said this when he saw Yosef and they were hugging each other. And he actually said this, Shema Yisrael, God is one. Not only is he one, he's the only being that exists, but he's also one, he's the only one who can cause anything. But not only that, he's the only one that determines the only outcome that can exist. It's a complete oneness. And that's what he realized when he saw Yosef. And that is why he said Shema. It was called the Hashkofa moment. You know, and he had to express that Hashkofa moment. So we now see these are the three illusions that mankind must work themselves through. They have to struggle to see even though reality doesn't look this way, you see, this is the truth of the matter. And the truth is, in the era of the Mashiach, we are going to experience these truths. And finally, in the end of time, we will put away the delusions that mankind suffers for thousands of years. You see. So in the end, there will be the Tikkun. That is the ultimate outcome. So we will see how everything God did, the entire history of man, all the wars, right, the famines, the good times of mankind, all of it, even though to us they look like a, a billion different incidences, in the end, each one had a contribution to bring the tikkun to its fruition. We will see that at the end of time in the Messianic era, could you imagine looking at a billion different incidences and they all point in one direction called the Tikkun HaKloli, the total and general rectification of everything. But then we're going to see exactly how everything is connected. Who you married, who your kids were, what happened to them, what happens to you, what happens to the Jewish people, what happens to the Goyim. All of it will be connected to one purpose, you know, it's astounding to be able to have that view that only the outcome of God survives and is the entire motive of everything. The second thing we will have, we will remove the delusion of Shlita. Who's the boss? Who's the cause? We will realize that only God is the cause of everything. That in the end, we did basically nothing. We are fooled into thinking that we do something, you see. And that will be revealed to us also in the Messianic era, this idea. We will finally be able to pierce the delusion, right, of causality. And we realize that only God gave us the ability, like God says, you know, it is I who give you the power to do everything. But that's in Yemei Samashiach. But we will not experience Yichud Mitziusoy, right? We will not experience in the Messianic era the fact that we all emanate from God. We will be pervaded with the presence of God, but that we are really emanating from Him, we don't. That will happen in Ulam Habo. And that's the greatest of all 
revelations, that sense that we, we don't have to search for self-worth. We are part of the existence of God in that sense. That is the greatest worth of all. And that itself is the greatest concept of being. And that we will experience in Ulam Habo in the future world. So, we are looking finally to get rid of this delusion. You'll notice that the window which is closing, which I started off this year with, right, uh, is an exacerbation of these delusions where everybody thinks that the outcomes of whatever they do, it's up to them. What does that do with God? Right? You take a look at what's happening in this world. Everybody thinks that they're the ones who determine outcomes. Second delusion, everybody thinks they're a cause. They decide what will be, you see, even though there's so much that is that it depends on the evil intent of what they want to do, you see. So all of this will be dispelled, eradicated in the Messianic era. Who knows? We, it's hard even to imagine what that means. But the ultimate prize, as they say, the ultimate goal of all of this, is when we realize that we are really projections of God on a screen, you see. So relative to ourselves, we exist. But relative to God, not really. But whatever. But then there's no question that we exist relative to ourselves. And we will feel God in us. Or rather, we will feel us in God. And that is the greatest of all gifts. Because we will experience true existence, true being, that we will have caused in that sense because we have free will. And that is truly what we have caused, the free will itself. In any case, that's what we're looking forward to, right? And uh, in many ways, this is the essence of Matantara. These three delusions, the delusion of self, the delusion of causality, and the delusion of outcome, these are the three ideas that the Jews recognized at Matan Torah. And these three ideas form the essential knowledge that God wants us to have. Any questions? Yes. Okay, so... Yeah. Um, Adam Adishan, our his punishment was the delusion. Um, the intensification of that delusion, yeah. Delusion. So then when we peel back that delusion, because that's our, our, somewhat of our purpose in this world, is to peel down that delusion to find the source in, of Hashem in it. When we do that, is that, yeah. is that how we... Um, are able to gain that more shefa or have more of a direct pipeline to Hashem because you you pulled back the veil, so to speak, and now you're able to see Hashem in everything. And when you do that, then you're able to to get more shefa. Yes, that's exactly what happens. God responds to us like a shadow. When you notice a shadow doesn't have any movement on its own, it depends on us. 
You know, you move one way, the shadow moves exactly the way we, we move, exactly. Of course, God is not a shadow, but God has decided that his actions will be a response to us. So therefore, we totally determine his actions, you see. So if you pull back and say, wait a minute, I didn't do this. This is really God, even though it looks like you did it. Then that Shefa itself, right, will come to us, you see. Uh, and, and yet you see that many times in Psukim, you know, for Hashem Miftachoi, and God will be for you, and if, you know, it's a devotion to you is a trust in the sense that He does everything for you, then He will be that trust. In other words, He becomes what you want, how you see Him. That's what He becomes, you see. That's the concept of a shadow. If you understand that He's a true cause, and you say, therefore, look, you're the only one that does anything, really. I don't do anything just looks like I do something, then God does that. He allows you to see that He is the true cause. And that insight is a tremendous merit that you have that brings the providence of God into your life. You see? So what you're saying is correct. So when we do that, that's a part of the tikkun, for for, yes. for men because we're we're doing the opposite of what Adam did and then that's how we could bring the messianic clo- I mean the messiah closer. Yes, in fact, in a certain sense, the messianic era is an era in which all these three delusions are removed. Because even in the messianic era, where we have a sense of self, it's not the same as we have now. You see. It's not the same. In Oilam Haba, it will be ultimate. It will be real. In Yemoisa Mashiach, it will be intellectual. But we won't experience the Enoid Mavada. Besides God, there's nothing else. But we will certainly know it intellectually. You see. So that's really what the era is. And the amazing thing is that the Rabbanjim revealed it to them at the giving of the Torah. Matan Torah. That's what Rashi means. That God pulled aside. He opened up the seven heavens. And he showed them, Shehu Yechidi. He's the only thing in the world that does everything. So that was the gift of Sinai. And of course, once that's true, you you want to experience that. And that's what all the mitzvahs are. The mitzvahs are nothing more, I shouldn't say nothing more, but the essential idea of the mitzvah is a trigger of that insight. That's what they do. The more you do mitzvahs, the greater is the triggering effect of the mitzvah to bring down that insight and allows you to experience what he, who God really is. You see? And that puts you under the complete care of the Rabbana Shalom. You see, that's what tzaddikim do. They want to be completely under his care. And the way to do that is by coming to this recognition. It's a struggle. It's not easy. Because we live in a world 
that reinforces this delusion of because a guy says, listen, if I don't go to work, I'm not making any money. But the truth is that outcome and work are completely disconnected. But God wants you to do it, and He connects your panosa to your work. So you think, well, my panosa is because of me. But the, the connection is an illusion. And that's part of what we have to break through. You see? So we're basically, we're, uh, does everyone have to break through this delusion in order for the Mashiach to come? Well, that is, well, yes. In a certain sense, yes. I mean, so Mashiach... Way, I broke through it already. Like, okay, I, I, I figured it out, and I, and I have that mindset, and it's with me all day long. But now what? Like, I'm, I'm still waiting for everyone else to have that. The problem is you are only responsible for one aspect of heaven. You need all the Jews, like a minion, right? Got ten Jews. If you take one Jew out, what, what are the other nine going to do? Right. So we need you to know, it's the that. same thing with, with the human body. You take one organ out, and how does the guy survive? It, it, it's what's called a team effort. All the Jews have to be part of the team, you know? And that's why everybody keeps coming back, you see? So even if you do it, fine. That'll ready you that when it does happen, you will receive all the reward that you deserve. But to do the tikkun, what's called the tikkun hakloli, the general rectification, needs all the input of the Jews. But that's so the reason why Mashiach doesn't come. What is the tikkun hakloli, the one that Rav Nachman put together with, with the tehillim, those ten pedakim? Oh, that? No, that? They, it's called the tikkun hakloli. Because apparently he felt, you know, that's what they say, is that those ten kapitlach, uh, uh, chapters of Tilam, have the greatest effect of bringing down his ore, his light, God's light. So it's called the Tikkun HaKloli, but I, it's, it's a different term than the one I'm using. Although they're Got the same it. term, but it's a different meaning. Got it. Yes. The other thing I wanted to ask was, um, I once learned, um, and it goes with what you're saying, is that um, Enon Milvador has three different um, sections to it, um, which is three different names of Hashem. The first is Amonai, the second is Elohim, and the third is Ekiyeh. And each one, uh, it, it says, one, he's the master of all the universe, which goes with the first but, uh, but thing that you said was the oneness of existence. And then the second one, Elohim, is that he sustains everything in this world, which is the cause of everything, that, like you said. And then the third, Ekiyeh, is that he wills everything into existence, and he's the one yeah. man, he, so, which is the Han, uh, Yehud, uh, you know, the Hanhaga. Hanhagosai. Yes, yeah, so it, it goes exactly with what you're saying, those three different names. Yes, they all reflect different aspects of God's personality, so to speak. Right? Yeah. Okay. Great. 
um, we now understand very essential ideas, you know, and how they connect to everything that we have to do. But look, the world is getting closer, hopefully, to it. And uh, someday, uh, in an instant of time, the darkness will disappear, and everybody's going to be blinded by the sun, the light of God, you know? Is it possible to feel that light of God even through the darkness? Even if the, like how we said, like even if you did, if you if you were able to uh, push through the delusion, and now you see the light of God, you're able to have that light even during the darkness. Personal. And a personal Good question. The, the 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 probably the answer is yes, but it's extremely difficult. It's like the Gemara says, you know, there were people that, were, that, that could stop the sun like Yahushua, Benun. But, they, but they, they, that's how powerful they were, you know. However, the generation wasn't worthy. It means that the, the presence of the Zayama was so intense that whatever Kedusha they could have could not break through the pollution, the Zayama, of the world. That's how bad it was. So it's funny. You may be worthy at a certain level to have it done for you, but that doesn't mean you can do it. Because there's two concepts. You have to have the power, which is possible, but the world has to be able to have that. And if the world can actually be obstacle to that power, so the, those, those two things can exist. So I would say it is possible, yes. But if the intensity of the evil is so great, then that will stop it from happening. Until, of course, that time that it won't present itself as such a tremendous obstacle. You know. But it is possible, although it's very hard, very difficult. <laughs> 